Hi, this is Delegate Leslie Lopez of District 39, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my colleague, DePaul Nibber. We are going to get into a roundup of public health threats, several items in the news. And DePaul, you are the public health expert. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to get into a bunch of stuff, including lingering COVID issues. We'll talk about tick-borne illnesses. Monkeypox is a big issue out there and a few other odds and ends. DePaul, thanks so much. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm thankfully not affected by any of the diseases that we are we will be talking about. It's it's a great time to be alive and also an exceedingly frightening time as well. I, that that's a good way to put it. And I let's jump right into it, Duvall. So COVID, uh, we've we've talked a lot, obviously, about COVID. It is not going away. It's still out there. We still have lingering effects. We're seeing new cases every day. The positivity rate has jumped as as to compared to where it was just a few months ago. So, DePaul, what's going on with COVID, particularly here in Maryland? What's the latest? Yeah, so we're in the midst of uh, an Omicron-related surge. Um, so our testing positivity has seen a slight uptick recently. Um, so within the last 24 hours, it's gone up by like 0.06%. So we're we're almost at 9% statewide in terms of uh, testing positivity. Um, you know, thankfully, that hasn't really translated into a massive amount of hospitalizations. In fact, what I'm looking at here on the state level is is a drop of nine. So we're under 500 there. Um, so we got plenty of beds. Should there be a terrible um, wave of COVID cases in the near future? But um, I think what we're seeing is uh, the effects of folks getting vaccinated um, and the severity of the disease being lessened as a result. Um, So, you know, we don't have to take up all those hospital beds. Um, And, you know, sometimes folks have COVID and they don't even know it. I think that's that's a great point about getting vaccinated. We've always said you know, the vaccine is not going to stop you from getting COVID, but what it would do and will do is keep you from being in the hospital. And I think you're exactly right. We're seeing that. And I, I will say, DePaul, I remember the days where the magic number for positivity was 5%, right? And you're saying we're around 9%. But I guess, you know, again, things have changed because of vaccines. So that doesn't necessarily mean we have to start taking the measures that we used to have to take when people weren't vaccinated, when we didn't have the vaccine available. That's correct. Uh, You won't see any sort of masking mandates on on the local level across the state. Um, You know, it's just it's kind of stark uh, as compared to the early days of of the uh, pandemic. You know, um, if we had seen numbers like this in the past, um, accepting the hospitalization number, of course, um, we would have almost assuredly had a couple of different measures in place. But, um, you know, like we've made such significant advances in terms of just the vaccine itself. I mean, uh, just this week, um, we were hearing about a local Maryland company, Novavax, having its vaccine potentially coming to market. 
Um, and then just today, uh, I'm reading about uh, Moderna, which has been on the market for a while, creating a, um, a booster shot that focuses in on Omicron. So um, these advances, I mean, they, they're going to keep us protected uh, for the long term. I'm a little bit excited about that. Um, and, you know, one thing I should note about the Novavax vaccine is that it is protein based. So it's very similar to like the flu vaccines that folks have been getting for years. And the thought around this is that by virtue of it being more of a conventional type vaccine, more people will uh, be willing to take it. You know, if there's still people that are um, hesitant, you know, I, I'm really hoping that this this changes their mind. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 something that's based on the literature that they put out is over 90 percent effective. Um, so on par with those mRNA vaccines that were put out by Moderna and Pfizer. That's great. So, of course, no no shortage of availability for vaccines and boosters. And now we're also hearing we're going to start being able to get younger kids vaccinated, hopefully sooner rather than later. That's obviously something that's been on a lot of people's minds, especially when you talk about school. And obviously we're going into the summertime now, but we still have summer camps and things like that. And, you know, I know people are anxious to get their kids vaccinated so that they don't have to worry you know, about their kid potentially coming down with a serious case of COVID. So that's also good news on that front. Are we still worried about the potential for another variant to pop up that, you know, the vaccines don't necessarily cover? I know when they're making these vaccines, they're thinking about that and thinking about how they could quickly change the vaccines to to account for a new strain of the virus. Is that something that I'm sure public health officials are still uh, thinking about a lot? Absolutely. And so I, I mentioned that Moderna has come out with um it's vaccine that's geared towards the Omicron variant. But, you know, that this process to get emergency use authorization, it's not automatic. It's not super quick. I mean, it is much quicker than, you know, the traditional time it takes to bring a vaccine to, to market. But um, what you're going to see is, um, you know, vaccines coming out and, you know, perhaps being effective to an extent, but not providing that 100% coverage like, you know, like the polio vaccine way back in the day. You know, it's not going to wipe out the illness. It, I, would, I, would, I would liken it to the flu in that sense. You know, there's going to be predictions about what protein spikes are going to show up within the newest variant of COVID, and then they're going to develop a vaccine around that. And then, you know, maybe there will have been two mutations before it actually hits the market. But that doesn't mean that the vaccine you're taking isn't going to prevent, you know, uh, illness or God forbid death. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's the kind of future we're looking at going forward. Of course, we will continue to follow the latest public health guidance. We have amazing people working on this at the county level. And I, I want to pivot to Paul to uh, something that's pretty terrifying that has obviously grabbed headlines in the past few weeks, and that's monkeypox. You wrote a great piece on the Conduit Street blog, which we will link in the show notes, just sort of walking through, you know, what is monkeypox? What are we seeing in terms of guidance? And, you know, what's the future here? So first of all, DePaul, let's talk about monkeypox. What is it? Are you concerned? And what are we hearing in terms of state and federal guidance? Oh, it, it's a pox upon monkeys, like a curse. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, 
So monkeypox is a, a relative of smallpox. It's a virus. And it was originally found in the 70s in um, some West African nations. But it has since made its way all across the world. Um, this most recent outbreak started in Europe, um, specifically within the United Kingdom. Um, it has spread to numerous countries and now to numerous states within the United States. And its primary mode of transport is through respiratory droplets, much like COVID. Um, so that's why you kind of hear about COVID and monkeypox being talked about in the same breath, no pun intended. Monkeypox can also be tr transmitted through um, direct contact. So you develop these sores people come into contact with and that that results in transmission and then you know there's indirect transmission that occurs by virtue of you know someone having these sores touching a uh, a blanket or bed sheet or something that other people come into intimate contact with and then there's transmission through that um, what's interesting about this uh recent iteration is that a lot of the cases that people have come down with have, were initially discovered in STI clinics. So like, you know, people thought that they they'd come in with um, some sort of sexually transmitted infection and then it turned out to be something very, very different. Um, and I think that speaks to the sort of intimate exposure um, element to the disease itself. In, in terms of like symptoms and severity, is this something that can kill people? It can if it's left untreated. It's not like the early days of COVID, um, there are vaccines available for it. Um, and the last I read, there was plenty of supply for it. Um, but there's also much less likelihood of it being transmitted from person to person. So I, I think it's, you know, it, it's certainly something that's on the radar of public health officials. I mean, the, the CDC um, raised its sort of threat level um, very recently, letting folks know that they should be taking precautions, don't share towels with people and things along those lines, you know, uh, you know keep your mask on um, as you would otherwise for, for COVID um, if you're going to be in settings where there's a bunch of people. But the disease itself, um, you know, it, it presents as sores, rashes, um, fever, you know, a lot of the things that you would associate with um, chicken pox. And I'm sure everyone has seen the like sort of horrific images of like the bumps that show up. That's obviously also a symptom that can present itself. So monkeypox is, is out there. It's nothing new, but we've seen a spike. We've seen an outbreak and that's made its way to the United States. And obviously, uh, you know, we have, again, our, our public health professionals issuing guidance. And so it seems like we can take some common sense precautions. And of course, like you said, there is a vaccine available. So I think a lot different than COVID. There are a lot of similarities here, but it seems like we're we're much better prepared to deal with this than we were at the onset of the of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's right. I think that's probably why you're not hearing the sort of same kind of alarmist kind of news cycle um, around monkeypox like you heard um, with the early days of COVID. But that said, I mean, just like with any disease, there's the possibility of a variant if it if the disease stays out in the public sphere for long enough. So we should be vigilant. We should be cautious um, and we should take this very seriously. 
And Paul, I want to pivot off of COVID and monkeypox to tick-borne diseases. Again, this is nothing new, but we are, you know, that it's that time of year where we start to hear about, you know, Lyme disease and, and other diseases which you can get into. And I think it's really important for people to understand you don't have to be in the woods necessarily to come in contact with the tick. And there are different ticks that carry different types of diseases, right? And so I want to get into this. I know you have some personal experience here, but what what's going on with with tick-borne diseases we've seen this also in the in the news and we know our public health experts are trying to get the word out in terms of of how to prevent this kind of stuff and then what people can do if they do come into contact with ticks what's going on DePaul? Uh, where are we right now what are we seeing out there the conversation is so so vast on this um so i i've had lyme disease my neighbor has had Lyme disease. Um, we're like borderline Lyme disease professionals between the two of us. But um, in terms of the disease itself, Lyme disease is, is one of many vector-borne diseases. And when I say vector, I, I mean like an insect or, or other blood-sucking creature um, essentially is the mode of transmission um, it has to make contact with you and then it spreads the disease to you that way. Um, there's actually seven different kinds of transmission and you hear about this um, as primarily being associated with ticks, but it could also be mosquitoes. It could be um, fleas. Um, you know, they, these anything that kind of um, ends up making close contact with you and sticking around for a minute um, is capable of um, transmitting these diseases. And so it's not just um, Lyme disease, you know, there, there's Rocky Mountain spotted fever, ehrlichiosis, uh, babesiosis. There's, um, you know, it, there's, there's viruses that can be transmitted. There's the, the bacteria that creates Lyme disease that can be transmitted. There's um, actually like uh, protozoan um, parasites that can be transmitted. Um, so it, it runs the gamut. The thing that folks need to be aware of is that when you go outside, bug repellent is, is kind of a necessity these days. It used to be that you know, these tick-borne diseases were primarily located in New England or, you know, out in mountain ranges out west. Um, but, you know, climate change has, has changed the game. Um, mm. You know, the CDC has, has put out um, article after article talking about how disease spread has changed based on climate pattern. I mean, we have mosquitoes coming from South America, making their way into the United States and transmitting Zika. Um, right. And, and, you know, from the north, we have these ticks that are migrating along with the deer into our communities and bringing, um, you know, the tick-borne illnesses like Lyme. This is not, you know, just with ticks. You said it can be mosquitoes or anything that come in, into contact with you and, and lingers for a minute. Most people, when you think about ticks, you think of, you know, okay, that's if I go into the woods. And I know if I go into the woods, I'm supposed to wear long pants and a long shirt and maybe put my socks over my pants. And then I'm supposed to check myself after to make sure that there aren't ticks on me. What else can people do to, to avoid, you know, coming into contact with, with ticks? 
uh, in mosquitoes, of course, that can also carry these diseases. I mean, are there any best practices out there? And then what are you supposed to do if you find that you, you have a tick on you or you think you have a tick bite? What should you do right away in that case? So if you find a tick on yourself, um, you should, first off, if you end up removing that tick, keep the tick. Um, you should have that so that it can be tested to see if it carries any diseases. Um, and that, you know, you, if you are potentially infected, you know, they can properly diagnose you and, um, get you the proper treatment that you need. Um, but, you know, and so we're not, we're not supposed to burn ticks, right? To Paul, I mean, I think some people, they think you should put a lighter to it. You should use tweezers, right? Let's just get that out there too. No, I think those are old wives tales. Yeah. I, the, the, what happens with any of anything like a tick or, or mosquito when it when it makes contact and, and punctures your skin, it's releasing toxins um, that prevent your blood from clotting and things like that. So like the thought was like you burn the tick off and, um, you know, like it will prevent it from stopping uh, from keeping your blood from constantly flowing out. But that's not actually the deal. Um, uh, what you want to make sure, though, is that the tick does not stay on you for a prolonged period of time. I, I've heard various accounts of this, but for Lyme, it was like if a tick's been on you for like 24 hours, then, you know, transmission is highly likely if the tick had uh, was a carrier of Lyme. You just want to make sure that you get the tick off you as, as quickly as possible. Um, but, you know, again, like uh, wearing clothing to protect yourself, being aware of like the presence of ticks around you. Um, there's various resources around that. that um, you know, there, there used to be some heat maps available of like where like tick cases are concentrated. Um, I have a feeling that those are just woefully outdated at this point. Um, they used to like come down to Pennsylvania and then stop kind of at the the uh, Mason-Dixon line. That's no longer the case. I did mention too, DePauli, it's not just, you know, you need to check yourself. If you have pets who are out in a field or in the woods, you need to check them as well because a tick can jump onto your pet and then the pet comes inside and all of a sudden the tick can jump onto you, right? So it's not, you need to check your pets as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, they, they have preventatives for animals. Um, you know, there, there's a Lyme disease preventative that you can get. I mean, make sure that all of your animals are up to date on everything they need to be outside. I can't emphasize that enough because, um, you know, Lyme disease is terrible. Um, again, I went through it myself, but like an animal can't talk to you and explain sim symptoms, you know, they're just going to be right. Under the weather, or feeling one way or another, and you know that you're just going to end up doling out for test after test. Um, not unlike my experience, actually. Right, right. And so I think I guess the bottom line here is, you know, you're you're not going to be able to avoid ticks, uh, you know, every single day. But the key seems to be make sure that if uh, if you do come into contact with a tick, you get it off fairly quickly. Especially, you don't want to wait more than 24 hours because if that tick is carrying Lyme or another disease, it's fairly likely if they've been on for that long that it's going to, to, to transmit that disease to you uh, or, or to your animal, like we said. So you got to check 
uh, be vigilant and and make sure that we're taking the precautions. And DePaul, I, I know one more thing we should talk about here. Um, I think it's it's timely as we wrap up. Acute communicable disease prevention. What is that and how does it function in state and local health departments? Because I know that's something that's on a lot of folks' minds as well. Yeah, actually, it's a core function of both the state health department and local health department. And, you know, it's been enshrined in law for a minute. Um, Our local health departments get money from the state to carry out this function. And thank God we have a uh, change in our our funding formula going forward that's going to, you know, put more money towards this um, beginning in, I think, 2025. but in any case, any boost that we can give to these programs is, is great. You know, I, I I used to work for the Baltimore City Health Department, um, and I and I regularly um, spoke to our acute communicable disease staff because they dealt with so much. I mean, measles when that there was an outbreak um, in the Baltimore region, you know, those cases got reported to us, and then we had to do case follow up, and you know make sure that there were um, mitigation measures in place. And, you know, it, it was just a a really intense process. And it actually ended up being the sort of foundation for a lot of COVID response across the state. So acute communi- communicable disease, um, you know, it, our hospitals and providers are required to report these cases to um, local health departments or to the state. And then there's case management that occurs at, beyond that point. Sometimes the feds get involved. Um, and the list of diseases are actually um, written in our local regulations. Um, so that actually does include things like Lyme, um, measles, um, and a, a a couple of other like major diseases. And what was interesting to me was that, you know, it's not a job that ends with the workday. When there was like a, a measles outbreak, for example, um, you know, we would have someone assigned with a cell phone to take calls from healthcare providers to log cases and then get in touch with, um, you know, state staff or local staff that could respond immediately. I was that person once upon a time. We tried our best to make sure that um, everyone across the state is safe. And, you know, it's it's such a critical function that I don't think gets nearly enough attention. Um, but, you know, that when we talk about contact tracing, like these guys have been doing it for a number of different diseases for, for decades at this point. So, um, you know, kudos to the people out there that are working on this. And um, I hope the public is just aware of how how close we all are to um, disaster, um, but for their interventions. You know, one of the things I think COVID certainly highlighted the, the role of our local health departments. And but but like you said, I mean, this is something that they've been doing for a long time. And I think people hopefully understand how critical their work is. And it's it's not like we just come in and say, hey, oh, we have COVID, so now everybody has to, to get to work. This is something that's going on every single day. There are all kinds of things that they are working on every day to make sure people stay healthy, to make sure people understand the simple precautions they can take, especially for the stuff that we talked about today, monkeypox, 
uh, tick-borne diseases, stuff like that. It's super important, and it's work that's going on every single day. And you're right, kudos to them. DePaul, we'll wrap up. Any closing thoughts from you before we we wrap this episode? Yeah, just um, kind of going back to the tick-borne, mosquito-borne illnesses. Um, so one thing I want folks to be aware of is avoid still water. Um, that's where mosquitoes breed. So you're going to find like um, that, you know, the larva um, gestate there. And then, you know, you're going to have a bunch of mosquitoes within that area. If you have standing water on your property, I highly recommend that you tend to it um, or avoid it if you if you can't. With respect to ticks, you know, if you know an area that is heavily trafficked by, you know, wildlife that's an area that is more likely to have ticks. I mean, it's not just going to travel with deer, right? It's going to travel with other animals as well. So um, if you see foxes, if you see deer, um, if you see raccoons um, flying around uh, in a park nearby, that's that's when you should be a little bit on high alert. Just wanted to make sure that uh, folks are aware. DePaul, this is great. Thank you so much. I think we got a lot of useful information out there today. Nothing I think to be, you know, for folks to be alarmed about, but there are simple precautions we can all take to make sure that we nip stuff like monkeypox in the bud so it can't mutate. And then, of course, that we're, we're going to have to deal with ticks forever. We're probably going to have to deal with COVID forever. So we all just need to to be careful and make sure we're taking the right kind of precautions to, to, to nip this stuff and make sure that it doesn't continue to spread. Thank you so much for joining us today, DePaul. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you. All right, we'll go ahead and leave it there. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for DePaul Nibber, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.